if they find out, if they find out our that we are making shot. this up, yeah. our credibility is shot. They will <laughs> never listen to us and believe what we have to say again. So it's just it's a gamble. It's right. a gamble. Well, it's a risk. Stay, let's stay on the it's screen a risk. then. Yeah, I wouldn't. It, it, I'm not advocating for any kind this, of dishonesty. It, it's possible this information will come out one day, and then we are done. Well, because I'm going to forget to edit this entire portion. Exactly. Out. Right. All right. Exactly. Just, and we'll then you're going to instead of posting yeah. it the box, you're going to post it to your website exactly. or something by mistake. Yeah. It it's going to be out the there time. in the world. Exactly. Hi everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I am an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. How are you today? Pretty good, Jeff. What's going on? I'm doing really well. How do you want to, what do you want to get off your chest? What do you want to talk about? I have a lot of things I want to talk about. One of the things that I've been seeing a lot in the news recently and and sort of pundits talking about and uh, folks on Twitter talking about is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, And I think there's two reasons why people are talking about this. Number one, uh, President Biden the other day when speaking about the crisis between Russia and Ukraine uh, basically said that we're the closest that we've ever been to uh, nuclear war since the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he used the word Armageddon, uh, which scared a lot of people, and a lot of people... Quality movie. Excellent movie. A good, good movie. Yeah, slightly underrated movie, actually. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Excellent maybe is the wrong word. But anyway, we'll, we'll, cover, that in a, we'll cover that in a subsequent uh, episode. <laughs> in any case, he, so he had, he had made reference to the Cuban Missile Crisis... Uh, and, and trying to invoke, I think, the, the idea that we are very you know, close to, to being in a, in a nuclear situation, as we were in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then it also happens to be the case that we are recording this October 13th, uh, 2022. 60 years ago, almost to the day, uh, is exactly when the crisis started. And so we're, we're basically at the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was actually on October 14th, 1962. Um, that this started because there was this U-2 uh, spy plane flying over Cuba, and the pilot looks out and, and notices some, like, new stuff, uh, new military installations. And he takes a bunch of pictures and uh, sends them to the CIA and all that kind of stuff. The next day, the CIA confirms what we're looking at here are basically uh, military uh, nuclear, not nuclear, but missile launch sites, which they presumed, you know, could have nuclear weapons on them. And then it's the next day on October 16th that JFK uh, brings together the so-called XCOM, the the people that will ultimately make the sort of decisions over the course of the next two weeks about how to proceed. So literally everything kind of happened, you know, within 48 hours to kick off off the crisis. And it just happens to be the 60th anniversary uh, of kind of of all that. And so I think because Biden brought it up and also because we're at the uh, 60th anniversary, I think a lot of people are rightfully asking, are there any lessons that we can learn? Uh, from that moment, from that crisis, because as we know, there was no nuclear war that that Cuba, uh, that the Soviet Union removed the the missiles from Cuba and the thing resolved peacefully. And so the obvious sort of question that that people might be asking is, can we do something like that uh, again? Is it possible to have some type of negotiation or some some other kind of settlement that would allow everybody to just, you know, sort of gracefully step back, walk away, save a little bit of face? Uh, and not have the world kind of blow up uh, in nuclear war. And so that's that's basically uh, the, the, one of the things I've been thinking about, and only because other people have been thinking about it uh, as well. So I, I would kind of like to explore a little bit of that if, we, if you have interest. Yeah, I think that would be great. Now, all of that sounds kind of vaguely familiar to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But as someone who's not really interested in history in any way, maybe you can... Can you take us through kind of the highlights of the story? Just uh, you, you hit some of them there, um, but just so that the we're all kind of on the same page when we think about its parallels for for today's. Okay, crisis. so so Jeff, you're asking me to do like a two minute uh, history of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thirty seconds would be even better. Thirty seconds. Yeah. Okay. I think actually, this is this is like the uh, the the Tolstoy problem. You know, Tolstoy sit down to to write like you know War and Peace, and it's going to be about this like you know war that had just happened, and he was like, well can't really understand that war unless you go back to like the the treaty of so and so and like you know uh, uh 50 years ago but you can't really understand that if you don't first understand so like there's a lot of things that kind of that lead up to the the Cuban missile crisis that I'm not going to Yeah and you already burned through your 30 seconds so I've already you know, I've already yeah. done so let's just move on to the next topic <laughs> I think I think the important thing to realize is that uh when JFK becomes president in 1961 he authorizes this Bay of Pigs uh, invasion of Cuba, which the idea was going to be they were going to overthrow Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro being the sort of communist leader that was aligned clearly with the Soviet Union. They thought that if they 
kind of supported the revolutionaries in Cuba that there was going to be this uprising overthrow Fidel Castro. As everybody knows, or you should know, uh, that did not work. That was, a, that was a big catastrophe. It was a big fiasco. It was very embarrassing to JFK. Shortly thereafter, uh, Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, the premier secretary of the Soviet Union, sit down in Vienna for their, their first kind of face-to-face uh, summit, and it goes very poorly for JFK. He's not prepared. Uh, he has to kind of to talk to uh, Khrushchev about what happened at the Bay of Pigs. They have the Berlin crisis going on, which, you know, is, is basically, you know, Berlin was divided and et cetera after World War II. And, and you know, uh, the Soviet Union wants to see, you know, West Berlin basically be part of, of the Soviet Union. So lots of things are going on. They'll eventually build the, the wall around Berlin called the Berlin Wall. So all of this stuff is kind of leading up to the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think it's important to, to understand that because the Cuban Missile Crisis doesn't really begin uh, with discovery of, of missiles in Cuba. That's what started the crisis. But the lead up to that was very much Nikita Khrushchev, I think, believing that uh, Kennedy was rather weak and somebody that could be kind of pushed around. And I think one of the reasons the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba was, was twofold. Uh, they wanted to defend Cuba. So we had, you know, the United States had done the Bay of Pigs, and so rightfully he wanted to defend Cuba. But also he wanted to project a little bit of power. And by putting nuclear weapons, you know, off the shores of Florida, essentially, you're saying to the United States, look, look at our capabilities, look, look at what we have. So I think you, to understand the crisis, you kind of have to understand just a little bit of, of what led up to it. So anyway, so I, I stopped uh, uh, earlier on October 16th is when the, the sort of XCOM gets together and they start to worry about uh, what's going on here. And initially, the Hawks and JFK's administration, uh, of which there were many, said we should invade cuba we should take out these these military installations we should we should get rid of these these nuclear weapons we should go in and invade this is the moment we, we didn't do the job in 1961 but now is this is the time and kennedy i think partially because of the failure of the bay of pigs was very distrusting of like the the joint chiefs like he was he was looking at these guys and saying they led me down a bad road last year regarding cuba why am i going to listen listen to these guys so instead of an invasion, instead of trying to take out the, 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 the nuclear sites, what he does is he quarantines Cuba. So he basically says, OK, nothing's going to go in or out. We're going to put this sort of like military quarantine. And crucially, we're also going to try to talk to the Soviets. We're going to try to have some communica- communication. We're going to try to see if we can figure out, number one, why are they putting their, their missiles there? And is there a negotiation that we can kind of engage in? To get out of this, and so they send these letters back and forth. And if you, for the listeners, if you're interested, you can read these letters online. They're actually really interesting, and several you know movies and books have been made about them and all that kind of stuff. But but the gist is that the letters go from being kind of confrontational, or actually very contra- confrontational. The first letter that JFK sends to to Nikita Khrushchev is basically like, "Don't be crazy, don't do this, don't plunge us into nuclear war. This is going to end badly for you." And Khrushchev responds to JFK, and he's like, look, these missiles are just for defense. We're there to, to protect Cuba. We're there to protect ourselves. And Kennedy's like, no, that can't be the case. You started all this. Like, clearly, any missile could be used for defense or offense. You know, this is, this is a terrible idea. All this kind of stuff. On October 26th, basically, at this point, we're like 10, 10 days into the, into the crisis, Castro sends a letter to Khrushchev and says, I want you to, send a, to do a first nuclear strike on, this, on the United States. So basically, Fidel Castro was saying, I want you to start a nuclear war uh, with the U.S. Khrushchev, to his credit, looks at this, this request and decides, crucially, that he's, he doesn't want to do this. That he, he actually decides, in that moment, I think, we need to do something to start de-escalating, not escalating the crisis. Because Castro is calling for, for escalation. Khrushchev decides this, is, this is, could very well lead to like the end of the world. We're not going to do this. So he sends a letter on October 26th, and he says, let's not doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war. In that letter, Khrushchev, who's this big sort of like, you know, burly Russian tough guy and, and took advantage of, not took advantage, but it was very confrontational of, of JFK in Vienna. If you read the letter, he's actually being a little self-deprecating. He's being emotional. He's being a little bit um, sort of like, we, we can do this together. It's a very different letter than the early, the early letters in, that, in these exchanges. And I think one of the things that Khrushchev understood was that we're going down a road that is getting very serious. When you have Castro calling for a first strike on the United States, that's basically saying, we want you to start World War III. We want you to start nuclear war with the United States. And Khrushchev, to his credit, says, I am willing to be a little bit self-deprecating. And, and risk appearing to be weak 
in this letter in order to de-escalate the crisis. Now, unfortunately, what happens like a day later is that this U-2 plane flying over uh, Cuba gets shot down. And JFK has to make a decision at that moment. Are we going to escalate? Or are we going we gonna, to you know, keep the status quo or whatever? And JFK, to his credit, realizes it's not Khrushchev who's giving these orders. And it, it turns out it wasn't. It wasn't Khrushchev saying, shoot down you know, planes over Cuba. The plane got shot down, but it wasn't, it wasn't Khrushchev. On that same day, Khrushchev sends another letter to JFK, and basically he says, I'm, I want you to withdraw your uh, uh, missiles from Turkey. Why does the United States have missiles in Turkey? Well, missiles in Turkey was, was part of a defensive strategy during the Cold War, uh, the early Cold War, for the United States to have missiles that were relatively close to the Soviet Union, like basically like more or less on the, on the doorstep. And JFK says, how about if instead what we do is we promise not to invade Cuba? And uh, so you have the, the Soviets saying, take the missiles out of Turkey and maybe we can have a deal. The United States says in the letter, how about we, we promise not to invade Cuba? Behind closed doors, Robert Kennedy to the Soviet uh, uh, Dobrina, I think it was the, the ambassador, says, we'll do the, the, the missiles in Turkey thing, but we don't want that to be public. So in other words, they had made this deal sort of like in, in, in public about the non-invasion pledge, and then privately, the United States had agreed to take the missiles uh, out, of, out of Turkey. So the crisis ends, I think, partially because Khrushchev, to his credit, realized we don't want to escalate to nuclear war. JFK was doing his best to, to assume that the Soviet leader did not have the worst of intentions. In other words, he didn't shoot down the plane himself. You know, he wasn't giving the orders. He, was, he, was, he, he remained cool as well. And they were able, to, in those letters, to move from a point of a very tense confrontation to a little bit of sort of mutual understanding, which I think is one of the reasons why that deal became, became something that they could, they could make. So at the end of the day... Uh, the United States removed the, the missiles from Turkey, and the, the crisis ends. It's kind of interesting, actually, if you go back and look at the, what the Joint Chiefs are talking about. Even as the Soviets are, are basically looking at the, the, the deal getting made, right, and looking at the, 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 the sort of the U.S. removing missiles from Turkey, they still, the Hawks and the administration still don't believe that. So in other words, they're looking at the Soviet Union thinking like they're, they're tricking us somehow. They're going to nuke us when we're not, you know, they think they got us where they, where they want us, right? It's like we've, we agreed to do these, uh, to remove the missiles from Turkey, and this is what, exactly what they want. And now they're going to they're gonna, uh, have a first strike against us. So they are hawkish throughout the entire thing. And Kennedy and his brother, Robert Kennedy, I think to their credit, kind of remain the, the cool-headed, like down the middle. Let's see if we can negotiate. Let's see if we can, you know, trust these guys a little bit. Let's build a little bit of trust here so that we can get out of, out of the crisis. So where does that leave us in terms of thinking about relevance for the Russia-Ukraine situation that we find ourselves in now? That, to me, is the big question. Well, thanks, everyone. I think that's, that's all the time we have for today. I uh, <laughs> appreciate everyone tuning in. This is, instead of cheap talk, we should change the title just for this episode to be like U.S. History with Professor Holmes. Okay. <laughs> well, you want to learn history. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the problem is, Professor Capolo, and, and you know this, you know this. I've written academic work on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I've actually looked at these letters in, in, you know, in some detail. And so when you have something that you've kind of worked on, you you get in the weeds, obviously, but you but because of that, also you like can't stop talking about it. Like when you start talking about the non-proliferation treaty, everybody rolls their eyes because we know like twenty minutes later you're still going to be talking about it. It's the same thing here. Like whether it's like face-to-face -face diplomacy or the Cuban Missile Crisis, I get kind of excited about it, and so I want to I want to have people understand my view of kind of how it how it went down and how it was resolved. Can I just make one last point that I think is absolutely critical? Please. One one of the things that JFK said. Uh, and I, I can't remember exactly when he said it. I think it was during the crisis. It might have been shortly thereafter. But he said, uh, and I quote, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. And this line has gotten um, sort of, of, you know, sent around the, the, you know, the policy world and circles and on Twitter and stuff like that over the last few days because it seems to be sort of exactly the conundrum that we're in now with, with Putin, right? A nuclear power that is faced with a choice of a humiliating retreat or nuclear war, that's a very dangerous situation. And so the more that, that Putin loses on the battlefield, the more that, that Putin realizes that militarily things aren't going, going well for him, a lot of people would make the argument he's, he's 
he's losing face. He might very well feel like personal humiliation over this. He might feel humiliation on behalf of the Russian people and a humiliated leader, a leader who's in the, in the, you know, pushed into a corner might very well take drastic action. And that is what Kennedy, I think, understood. And what Kennedy understood about, about Khrushchev is that we need to find a way out of this where we can save face and both sides can claim that they, they found a solution that was, that was good for them. So the challenge for us in the West, the challenge for, for the NATO countries, the challenge for anybody who wants to see a, a peaceful resolution to what's going on, I think, is to find the sort of you know, Jupiter missiles in Turkey equivalent with the Russia-Ukraine situation. The problem is, number one, I'm not sure such, a, such an off-ramp exists. And also, the Russia-Ukraine war is very different than the Cuban Missile Crisis. You can make the argument that maybe the Ukraine situation is a proxy war of some kind. I, I don't buy that. But at the end of the day, the, the main confrontation of the Cuban Missile Crisis was Russia, was the Soviet Union and the United States. Here, Ukraine is, is a very different entity. And this has all kinds of different implications for how we think about uh, whether or not we can learn lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis and port them over to Russia and Ukraine. I think this is an interesting analogy for our current situation, but the Cuban Missile Crisis is kind of famously this Rorschach test for international politics in the sense that so many have written about the lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and those lessons are so, so different depending on who has written on them. And so you can kind of see in the Cuban Missile Crisis anything you want to see and take out of it any lesson for the future that you want. There is still a big debate over who who was the winner of the Cuban Missile, if there was a winner. Who was the winner, right? Was the, who, who got us out of this? Who got us into this? All of this is still very much in dispute in the sense that there are people taking various stances on it. I don't think that the facts of the case are so much in dispute, so much as the interpretation of what that means for modern contemporary uh, international politics. So of all the analogies we're going to reach for here, this is one that is tricky in the sense that we don't really know what to take away from it. And you can see that in the discourse around it right now. If you, uh, you know, venture on Twitter accidentally, people are drawing all kinds of conclusions from the Cuban Missile Crisis and what that means for the, the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. So, you know, you're, you went right to the good leaders avoid nuclear war takeaway, which is mm-hmm. one takeaway. Um, and maybe we need an off-ramp, which is, which is another, another takeaway. Take but, you know, that's not the only one out there, right? I mean, are you seeing other people using the Cuban Missile Crisis in what you would consider uh, not the right way, drawing the wrong lessons from it? Well, I don't, I don't know. So it's, it's really tricky with, with analogies and like asking the question of like, what are the right lessons to learn uh, from a, from a a moment in history? What I've seen a lot of people do on Twitter is actually make a, a similar point to what you're making, but, but slightly differently and saying, look, these historical cases are all sort of like by definition unique, right? There's so many different variables that that are at play in the Cuban Missile Crisis that simply do not exist uh, uh, in the in the present conflict. That any attempt to draw an analogy between these two moments in history or the, he- the history to the present is just going to be fraught with difficulty, and thus we shouldn't even try. Uh, and actually, I've seen one of the Soviet uh, uh, historians make this point, basically saying like there are no lessons to be learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis that are relevant for today. It was 60 years ago. It was on a different topic. It was in a different place. The leaders were completely different. And so therefore, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting, like, you know, uh, uh, case to, to read about and learn about. And it's, it's nice that we didn't go to nuclear war, but there's a lesson to be learned uh, uh, from that. I, I'm someone in the middle. I mean, I have seen people, for example, argue that these letters that, you know, Holmes makes way too much of these letters and, and all this kind of stuff. Although I will say it was after the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, uh, that the hotlines get established between you know Moscow and Washington D.C., which implies to me anyway that the leaders thought that this this interaction, this ability to kind of talk when you're in a crisis, uh, could could matter a great deal. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there's lots of interpretations of. I mean, it's like it's 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 like saying you know what is what are the lessons from World War One? Uh, you know, it's like well, yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of lessons. It depends on sort of like how you look at the world. That's that's how you're going to understand um, what's going on. I think one other thing to to point out, too, is that there has been some work in international relations looking at analogies themselves. 
So there was this book that was written, I think, back in the 1990s. Yufei Kong, uh, I think, is the author. And it, it, it was basically this idea that, um, and the name of the book is Analogies at War, if anybody wants to take a look at it. But the basic idea was like, look, if you go back and look at these cases, um, you have statesmen and policymakers turning to historical analogies, like, all the time. Like, if you if you just look at, like, meeting minutes and memcoms and stuff like that, they're always, like, saying, like, you know, well, as we saw in the Korean War, or as we saw in Vietnam, or Munich, or whatever, like, you know, we should do X, Y, Z, or, like, the lesson should be blah, blah, blah. And what, what Kong points out is that the, the problem with historical analogies is not so much to draw, like, connections to the, to the past. That's fine. But oftentimes what happens is the policymakers will draw a connection to the past, like have that anchored in their head, and then start seeing everything that happens through the lens of that historical analogy. So, for example, if you think that what we're dealing with is a Cuban Missile Crisis, then you're going to be asking questions like, why isn't Putin and Biden, like, why aren't they sending letters to one another? Why, why aren't there, you know, efforts to have secret, you know, diplomacy going? And by the way, there could very well be. We have no idea. Like, it's, it's quite possible that Biden and Putin have sent 20 letters over the course of the last couple of months to one another. Who knows? We'll find that out in like 30 years. But the point is, is that, you know, if you, if you look at an analogy and sort of adopt it as your sort of uh, lens through which to understand what's going on, that necessarily it, it seems to be the case for a lot of these policymakers that whatever you see in the world is going to be filtered through that lens. And so sometimes that's valuable, but as Kong points out, most of the time it's actually not. Because what you would rather do is look at the world objectively to the extent that one can, and then say to oneself, like, you know, not how does this sort of compare to Munich or how does this compare to World War One, but rather what are the elements of this case where there might be parallels to the analogy, and then I can interrogate that. One of the things that Kong finds in, the, in looking at, at these case studies is that policymakers in these meetings bring up these analogies all the time, and they're also challenged a lot. So like we were just talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the lessons to learn. If you and I were debating what we should be doing in, in Ukraine, and I said to you, well, this is a lot like the Cuban Missile Crisis, you might say to me, this is nothing like the Cuban Missile Crisis for the following reason. It's Germany 1938, my friend. It's That's Germany what we're 1938. Doing. But what Kong finds is that by, by actually being like pressed, uh, and like, you know, sort of like have somebody make an objection. That doesn't do anything to the policymaker. They just dig in their heels and they yeah. try to find reasons why actually you're wrong, Jeff. And this is, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, so almost always the analogies are challenged, but that doesn't really have any effect on the proposer of the analogy. And if anything, it makes them kind of dig in their heels, which of course makes the whole, the whole thing worse. That's the whole point. It's like we, we sort of like stop being objective and saying like, maybe I'm wrong about this part of the Cuban Missile Crisis applying here. If I, if I have pre-decided that it's, it's uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, then confirmation bias and all the kind of stuff that, that you know, psychologists point out is going gonna, is gonna to be rampant. So all that to say, it's not that analogies are, are useless. Kong doesn't make that point. They can help you kind of define the nature of the situation. They can help you kind of understand potentially uh, what sources of information you should be looking at, maybe ways to predict what might happen. But once you've sort of adopted your analogy uh, and are unwilling to interrogate it critically, that's when, that's when bad things happen. So I wouldn't want the listeners to think that, that Holmes is saying, this is definitely the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we can, we can definitely learn lessons. I think we have to be careful in making these historical analogies and, and make sure that we're interrogating them appropriately. Well, this gives me a chance to plug one of my favorite books in this genre, which is a book called Thinking in Time uh, by Richard Neustadt and Ernest May which is even older. So I probably mid to late eighties, I would say this book came out. And these are two kind of uh, policy slash academic people, um, one a political scientist and, and one a historian. And this book is a like how to guide to using analogies and history in decision-making. It's very uh, kind of self-consciously a book about how to make good policy decisions. And it lays out a framework for, okay, you think you have an analogy that works. Here's what you do to figure it out. And it lays out like a step-by-step -step process of listing you know, what you know and what you don't know, what is similar and different from the analogy you're considering. And it kind of takes you through this, this decision-making process to think about, is this analogy really helping you here? <laughs> and, and if so, what, what should we take from the analogy you're using? And so this is a book that um, was very influential at the time um, and I think it's kind of fallen out of, out of use cause it's getting on in years and some of the analogies are, are, um, a little dated now, but, uh, the, the framework persists. And I think, 
um, it's worth kind of looking back at these oldies but goodies sometimes. And it's it's uh, interesting that we're having this conversation because I'm teaching a class right now on on prediction. And we just, I just assigned a chapter from this book. We just went through this question of <laughs> how do you reason from history in a, in a way that uh, doesn't do damage to your current uh, policymaking and your, your, uh, and the history itself. So this yeah. is something that's still relevant. It's still relevant. And, and I'm fascinated by it too, because, you know, there's, there's the perspective, I think it was Hume, right? He said like the, the thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And so like, you, you don't want that to be true. Right. You don't want it to be the case that, like, you know, you look at everything that's going on in the world to be like, well, you know, you can't really learn from history because it's all complicated and everything's different. You know, clearly there should be some benefit from learning from history. But the, the pitfalls are like what we've been talking about, where, you know, if you draw the wrong lessons or you don't think about it critically, then you end up in a potentially even worse situation. Then it'd be, it'd be better, actually, if you didn't learn from history because you're interpreting things incorrectly. But, Jeff, I would like to, if we can, if you if you would if you wouldn't mind. Move off of analogies for a second and, and talk about uh, something that that's a lot of people are worried about. And, and this has no analogy uh, in, in at least in the precise way. I mean, 1945 is a little bit different. But if we think about the unthinkable, right, we think that Putin actually does use um, some kind of nuclear weapon. And people have talked about these so-called tactical nuclear weapons, which imply, you know, sort of like a surgical strike. And I, I, my, my understanding is that that's actually not all that of a metaphor and that you could you could tell me if i'm wrong about that but anyway if if putin were to use a, a say a tactical nuclear weapon or any kind of nuclear weapon um i'm wondering one why you think he would do that so what what would be the explanation for using a nuclear weapon if you're putin and then also how would the west broadly you know the united states western europe nato countries how would they respond how would they likely respond do you think to such a nu nuclear uh, use of nuclear weapon. And granted, obviously, it's going to depend a lot on the specifics. But I just want to get your, your sort of general thoughts uh, on these those two questions. As pundits, you know, sort of continue to publish things like we're on the road to nuclear war and the end is near and all these kind of Armageddon and Biden himself, Armageddon, right? So what's your assessment of all this? Yeah, uh, th thanks, Marcus. There is quite a lot of discussion about this issue of the the potential use of Russia's potential use of nuclear weapons in the Ukraine conflict. And so I see it seeping from my little world of nuclear people well into the mainstream, which is never a good sign, right? When when I see my friends being quoted in major publications, um, we know that something has gone horribly wrong. So yeah, let's talk about it. So uh, just to get some terminology down, often what we're talking about when we talk about Russia's use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine isn't like a preemptive strike of all their weapons on, a, on the U.S. homeland, right? That's not usually what, what people have in mind. What they have in mind are the use of smaller nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, these are usually, we call these tactical nuclear weapons. Um, tactical just meaning, when you, the, just the distinction between tactical and strategic is tactical is there to win a battle. Strategic is there to win a war. Um, and so that's true of just the definition of those words. And we think about tactical weapons. Those are weapons that are smaller, they're shorter range. And at least originally, way, way back in the nuclear age, we thought of these as maybe having some battlefield use that is like of some military purpose in using tactical weapons. Strategic weapons, bigger, bigger boom, uh, longer range. Those are weapons that you attack the homeland population centers, command and control systems with to win the war. So those, that's the distinction between tactical and strategic weapons. And so we, we sometimes worry that, or a lot of people are worried that Putin would use tactical weapons in Ukraine. But I think it's important to clarify that the use of tactical weapons in Ukraine would not be to achieve a particular military goal. Okay. So there is no military purpose that requires nuclear weapons in Ukraine. There is nothing you need nuclear weapons for there that couldn't be done with conventional weapons. And so the purpose of nuclear weapons use would be strategic. It would be different. It would be designed to demonstrate Russia's resolve to the international community, their commitment to winning in Ukraine. And it's a way for Russia to say, we take this so seriously that we're willing to break the seal on this international norm we sometimes call a nuclear taboo, the use of nuclear weapons. We're going to break the seal. We're going to do this for the first time since the U.S. dropped weapons on Japan in 1945. And the shock of that is one way of demonstrating to the world how committed Russia is to victory in Ukraine. So you're not going to convince us to back off. Look at how serious we are. Here's a nuclear weapon. 
the idea here is related to something that we talked a lot about um, in my nuclear community over the last five to 10 years. And this is a doctrine called escalate to deescalate. Doctrine, just like a plan for how you would use nuclear weapons. Escalate to deescalate is what this is called. And the idea behind escalate to deescalate is you escalate the situation by dropping a nuclear weapon in a battlefield. And then the idea there is you're, you're demonstrating your commitment sufficiently that the opposition backs off and you've thus de-escalated the situation, right? So you're escalating in order to back the opponent off. And then hopefully uh, from the perspective of Russia, you reach a, their, the opponent backs off and you get an end to the conflict on your terms. There's been a big debate in my community over whether this is a real thing, whether this concept exists in Russian doctrine. I've long been a escalate to de-escalate skeptic. And so I, I never thought this was actually part of Russian doctrine. I think that's the, where most of the evidence lies. But ultimately, that doesn't really matter, because if this is something that Putin decides he wants to do, either because he thinks that that would help him in the conflict or because he's facing domestic pressure or he's worried that he's losing his grip on power, if there is a sense that he's been defeated in this in this war, all of those things might lead Putin to decide, OK, it's worth doing this. Uh, it's worth dropping a, a bomb in, in, in Ukraine. And it could be, you know, there are different ways to do it. It could be uh, find some deserted area or, you know, Snake Island or somewhere where there's like, a, you know, not a lot of people would be killed, but it'd be a way to kind of demonstrate your commitment or it could be used for for um, actual military purposes, although nuclear weapons are not the best way to do to achieve military ends. Um, so that's kind of the scenario, right? What if what if uh, Putin drops a weapon to show how how serious he is? And then the question is, well, what would happen next, right? That's kind of the, the key question that everyone's, everyone's thinking about. And, I mean, there's a lot of debate. We don't know what would happen next. So we, we heard President Biden talking about Armageddon, not just a good movie anymore. We're getting close to, to the potential for nuclear exchange, for escalation from the, like, a single weapon dropped in Ukraine to a, uh, some kind of broader nuclear exchange. That's a worry that some people have, that this could escalate out of control. Um, and so it's worth thinking about what, what would happen next. The United States has not been clear about what it would do in the case of a nuclear use by Russia. Um, this is the strategic ambiguity we've talked about before on this podcast, um, that we don't want to come out there and say anything. And the fact is, we don't know what we would do. It's very context dependent. You know, it's there's a lot of different scenarios of what could happen. Um, and so Biden doesn't know what he would do, so he can't say what he would do in, in that situation. Can I just interrupt you there for, for one, just one second? So I've heard people say that before, that Biden, Biden doesn't know what he would do, but surely the Pentagon uh, has presented Biden with, with lots of different scenarios to, to at least think about, right? And so they've been, they've been I mean, this, this happens all kinds of different levels of government, but I would, I would think that Biden has been briefed on, you know, just the, the broad outlines. Like if, if, if Putin is to use a nuclear weapon, it might look like this. You know, Admiral Mullen on, uh, over the weekend said, retired Admiral Mullen said, you know, he, he might use it, let's say, in like Zelensky's hometown, right, in Ukraine to like send a message to, to Zelensky, right? So something like that, like he uses a, a, a tactical nuclear weapon, relatively small nuclear weapon in X place in Ukraine, not for a military reason, but for a political slash strategic signaling reason. Um, and here are the various options, President Biden, that we, we have. And here's what our recommendation would be if that if that were to happen. And then maybe there's, you know, other ones, you know, if he uses it out, you know, and it just does it. A, a test uh, or there's like does it in the ocean or you know whatever the case is and so so when people say biden doesn't know what he would do that that scares me a little bit number one but i, I how sure are folks in the nuclear community that, that that's actually true like how how do we know that that biden kind of hasn't made up his mind um already with the nuclear you know planning folks and the joint chiefs and all that about about what looked like a, a response would look like because it might be the case that, that this would have to happen relatively quickly depending on what putin actually was was doing right yeah, no, it's a, that's a really good point. Um, let, let me clarify one thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that question. The, the one thing I wanted to clarify is that when I said tactical weapons are smaller nuclear weapons, I should clarify that um, smaller in the sense that they're about as large as the weapons the U.S. dropped in Japan in, in 1945, and maybe a little bit bigger. Those today qualify as small nuclear weapons. So we're not talking about like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, if you want to know what these actually look like, go to the wonderful nuclear nuke map website by uh terrifying by terrifying alex Wallerstein, um and it is uh you can see exactly how big these weapons are and what damage they would do just to get that out of the way 
does Biden really know? So certainly there are plans, right? I mean, it's not as if nobody's discussing this. And and I suspect, although I don't know, I suspect that Biden has been at least presented with the possibilities of what Putin would do. And I bet that he has even been presented to, with some possible options on the part of the United States and NATO to respond to those things. I would be surprised if he had picked one before the fact, right? This is the kind of thing that you want to kind of wait till this happens before you make a policy decision. Um, but certainly, I mean, there are, there are options. The U.S. kind of planning apparatus has a bunch of options available for when or if this occurs. Um, what, what are the possibilities? And we should talk about what those, what those possibilities are. But I think like, you know, there is maybe a scale of escalation that Putin can engage in from a nuclear test to a detonation on Ukrainian territory that doesn't kill anyone to a detonation that does kill people. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's possible to imagine that, but I think the big impact comes from nuclear use in war, which has not been done, right? Just breaking the seal. And so that that's uh, that's probably where all the action is. And and so it doesn't really matter, I think, that much um, exactly how they are used so much as that they are being used. Uh, so at that point, what does the U.S. do? What does NATO do? Um, France, incidentally, I think today, was it today or yesterday? Macron said, um, we will not use nuclear weapons in response to uh, Russian nuke in Ukraine, um, which, you know, I, I think is true, uh, probably true. And there's some questions to whether it makes sense to say that in advance. And and this is, uh, there's a big debate going on around this signaling. And we talked about strategic ambiguity and why won't Biden just like lay out a line and say, draw a line in the sand and say, do not do this, or we will, you know, rain our weapons down upon you or whatever. And and there are a lot of good reasons not to do that. One is if we really wouldn't use nuclear weapons in, in uh, response, then maybe we don't want to say that in advance and let Putin have some, feel some uncertainty about how severe the U.S. response would be. So it's, it's, you know, that's maybe one reason that, that we don't come out and say exactly what we would do. So the options are um, nuke them back. Nuke them back bigger is one option that's out there. And you know, there are a couple of, uh, of colleagues of ours who are advocating for that in op-eds currently, um, that not only do you nuke in response, so they're going to do this, we're going we're gonna to go back with the same thing and we're going to go bigger. The risks of that are maybe obvious, so the potential for further escalation, killing people, the further weakening of the nuclear taboo, so any kind of norm that exists against nuclear use. The U.S. really benefits from that norm against nuclear use because our conventional military power is so great. So we don't need the nukes. So if everyone else will abstain from using them, that would be good for us. So the weakening of that norm is a potential downside. On the upside, uh, this really demonstrates that we will not be bullied. Uh, we will not be held hostage by nuclear weapons. And uh, you can use nukes, but we're, we've got them too. And so we can't be deterred by them. Um, that's, that's one strategy. Another strategy is to do nothing or not really nothing, but uh, nothing military. So maybe we strengthen sanctions further. Maybe we join the chorus of right-thinking countries condemning this horrible act, right? Maybe there's a strongly worded statement that comes out of the United Nations. And there's some thought that maybe... Because this will be such a such a dramatic break with 75 years of of precedent of not using nuclear weapons in war, that the international response will be sufficiently angered that uh, that Putin will get the message that this was not the right move, and uh, and he will you know feel bad about what he's done. I guess I don't know. Uh, so and, and by that, Jeff, we mean we mean like China. We mean the countries that have been sort of like you know sitting on the fence a little bit would would be forced to come out and and be strong. We one might think strongly oppose such an action. Yes, and by strongly oppose, I mean you know a statement. Say so. Yeah, right. they'll say so. You know, yeah. maybe not. Maybe not. Which very is not. Harshly. Which is not nothing. Which is not really nothing. But but. It's pretty close to nothing. Not, it's okay. it's it's pretty close to nothing. I I don't think much of this of this idea. Make him an international pariah. pariah right. You're not I mean, a big, here's a country yeah. that's already kind of cool with being an international pariah. Right. So so it's not clear to me how much more pariah we can get here. Um, right. And so that that doesn't really. I don't find that argument compelling. Yeah. And then there's the the pleasant middle ground, which is a conventional response, a conventional military response to a nuclear attack. Um, and this is where I think I, I would put my money um, on this option for NATO, that uh, I believe if there was a nuclear use by Russia, that NATO would feel compelled to engage directly militarily with the conflict 
Um, and that might mean NATO air support. That might mean potentially troops on the ground in, in Ukraine. I think I think those things come to be on the table if Russia engages in this kind of escalation. Now, there's a big debate in, about this. So there are there are people, uh, smart people on all sides of this of this discussion, advocating for uh, nuclear tit for tat. Uh, if they use nukes, we use nukes advocating for not uh, engaging U.S. troops in a way that could lead to further escalation that could lead to a strategic nuclear exchange, like nuclear exchange uh, between U.S. And, and Russian forces against each other's homeland. So there, there's, there are good arguments about, abound here, um, but I think it's very likely that the actual response would fall kind of in this conventional response. But the idea being this is enough of a response to make it clear that we're not going to be bullied by uh, nuclear use but not so much that we feel it continues the escalation, even though it is kind of escalatory to have to have NATO troops involved. Well, and it's, it would also be doing it would also be doing the thing that NATO troops have resisted for you know NATO countries have resisted the entire time, which because they didn't want to escalate. So it's, right. it's, a, it's a little bit of a tension in the argument. It's sort of like we would we would do the things that we thought before would escalate, but since Putin has already escalated, right. You know, this might not escalate as much because he's already used a nuclear nuclear weapons. Right? But that's the whole problem, right? Is that is that so the the use of nuclear weapons is super escalatory here. So so what do you do? So if you don't do anything, then you know you've just kind of given up the whole thing, right? I mean, we're just gonna keep going. That encourages Russia potentially to use further nuclear weapons, right, to, to achieve its aims. And so that's a really difficult pill to swallow. That might be the right thing to do if there's a concern this really would escalate to a nuclear war, killing us all. That that would be bad. And so we should avoid that. As you said, you know, JFK would say, let's not let's not have a nuclear thermonuclear holocaust. Let's not do that. So if, if there's a feeling that putting NATO troops into this war would bring us closer to the brink and it's not uh, worth it, then um, that's an argument that people are making that maybe we shouldn't do that would be too escalatory. On the other hand, um, if you allow Russia to get away with the nuclear use with no consequences, then what are the implications of that for the future? I mean, what, what does that mean for, for other neighbors of Russia? What does that mean for Ukraine? The fact is for Ukraine, it's very unlikely that a uh, tactical nuclear weapon dropped in Ukraine is going to stop Ukraine from defending its homeland. Oh. You know, I mean, th there's, there's, it's hard to imagine, right? They're going to be more galvanized, if anything. I mean, you would think they would just, it would, it would just increase their, it's, it's an existential threat to Ukraine. So it would just increase their, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly, right? So, so this doesn't, this doesn't achieve any warnings on the, uh, if, if it's done by Russia, right? Like, that's the part of this that gives me a little bit of hope. If you look at the most likely outcomes, from nuclear use by Russia, they are uh, just as resolved, if not more so, Ukraine, um, which is, you know, currently beating Russia on the battlefield. The potential for a much more aggressive response by NATO, um, so more involvement by NATO, neither of those things are good for Russia. So seeing this, looking down the game tree, looking into the future, the maybe sort of rational Putin will say, let's not do that. Those, those outcomes are not good for me. This is not something that I want to do. As long as the strategic calculus here points away from nuclear use, I think it is more likely than not that uh, that Russia holds off and doesn't do this because, it, you know, he's not Putin. Say what you will about Putin. He, he it's possible that he can see this. The, the problem with that logic, though, is that Putin has done a series of things in this conflict that are against Russia's interest, right? So my judgment about what, what Putin thinks is a good idea is like clearly, clearly off. I mean, if I were, if I were Putin, I wouldn't have done any of these things. So it's, I wouldn't have invaded in the first place. And, and so it's, it's hard for me to kind of like have a lot of confidence that Putin sees the world the way I do. Let me, let me offer one other alternative argument for what Putin might be thinking. What, what if the calculus is, if I use a tactical nuclear weapon, um, what that's going to do is scare a bunch of NATO countries. And so we've seen, we've seen so far in the, in the conflict, NATO has been very, you know, galvanized. We're all in this together. Everything's, everything's fine. But the prospect of an escalated nuclear war in Europe might be very scary to a country like Germany, let's say. And so Putin might be thinking to himself, if I use a nuclear weapon, I'm going to scare these NATO countries and that alliance is going to start to fall apart. So he, he thought... I think when he invaded Ukraine, that there was there was not going to be the solidarity among NATO countries. He he got that totally wrong. That was just either him being stupid or miscalculating or whatever. But he got that wrong. But what if he's what if there's something to the idea that once you use nuclear weapons, that is going to change the calculus a little bit? And so with Germany, 
you know, France, they might say, I'm not really comfortable engaging in this conventional retaliation that you're laying out, Jeff, because I don't really want to put boots in the ground in Russia. I, I, I don't really want to be in World War III with Russia. And if Putin is thinking that maybe you get these countries to back down a little bit and the solidarity breaks, then maybe the, the prospects of a conventional kind of re- retaliation are, are a little more bleak for the West because you don't have that same level of solidarity. Yeah, I mean, and, and if he thinks that that's true, then maybe it's worth a shot if he sees himself losing, um, and particularly if he's concerned with his hold on power in Russia. Yeah. You know, there, there are some analysts of Russia, Russian politics, smarter than me, know more about that than I do, um, who say that a loss, if, if this war turns into a clear loss for Putin and it ends, then he's, he's not going to be in power much longer. Um, I think that maybe there's some wishful thinking there, but um, that's at least one perspective on this, that Putin's hold on power is inextricably linked to achieving something he can call success in Ukraine. And so if it's down to, well, I could either uh, be out of power or do this Hail Mary, well, we'll maybe we'll try the Hail Mary. And the Hail Mary is uh, I break the seal on the nukes and, and see what happens. Um, and maybe I'm, maybe Professor Holmes is right. And uh, this creates some fractures in the alliance. I, I personally have a hard time seeing it. I, I think, if anything, this just demonstrates the importance of NATO and will lead to greater NATO solidarity um, in the face yeah. of a nuclear threat. So, I, I mean, to me, I, this seems like a very far-fetched idea. But, you know, if you're desperate, maybe maybe it's worth the gamble if, if, if Putin is thinking about this in the same way you are. Well, if it's... To, to me, the scary part is if Putin has decided that, that you know, the sort of downside, like, so if, if you believe that, like, if Putin loses this war, uh, it's it's over for him, whether politically, maybe, like, physically, like, his life and all that kind of stuff. For him, the downside really doesn't matter, right? So, like, he has this strategy. What one could interpret what Putin might, might do with nuclear weapons as a strategy is, like, let's flatten like this, the probability stuff, like we'll just say like, OK, what we're going to do is pursue a strategy where I can I can have a, a better probability of, of, a, of a good outcome and also a higher probability of a very bad outcome. But because I don't care about the bad outcome because I'm, I'm, I'm going to be done, maybe he, he pursues that. Right. So I that's that's the part that worries me is that he's looking at this as like, you know, literally uh, I win or I get a good enough outcome that I can sort of save face or or I die. And I'm done uh, politically, you know, whatever. And so if you're in that type of situation, then the, 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 the low probability thing of, of winning or saving face is, is appealing to you because the downside is, is, is death. You know, it's like you're, you're, you're done. So that's the part that just it concerns me is that he's looking at this very much as like an existential to Putin threat, which would encourage him to to take more more risk. Well, exactly. I mean, that's that's the fear. This ties in not to be all uh, professory, but this is an international relations concept called gambling for resurrection. This idea that a leader for domestic political reasons might seek conflict uh, to retain their hold on power. And in this situation, the downside of losing a war, it's like worth a shot, right? Because you otherwise you're definitely out. And this ties in also to a lot of concepts in behavioral economics and psychology uh, about decision making, like loss aversion and uh, the concern when you're in when you're in the lost domain, when you feel like you're losing, you're much more likely to take greater risk. You're more risk acceptant in the lost domain, the behavioral economists would say. So, you know, there are there are decision-making pathologies. There are like analytic biases that lead down this road. There is, uh, you know, IR theory to support this, this sort of thing. So it's certainly a, a possible story. But my, my bet is still on, I think the most likely scenario here is that we don't see any nuclear use at all, that uh, Russia continues to try to make some nuclear threats, because why not? They think that might help. Um, and certainly, They've succeeded in Putin has succeeded in having the conversation go in that direction. And people have actually uh, been angry at President Biden for raising this possibility publicly for for yeah. uh, for giving kind of for for seeming to accept the the hypothetical that Armageddon is in the offing. Right. That that even that is a concession that we should not make, that we should not be talking about. I'm not sure I like re- agree with that criticism. I kind of feel like 
um, where he's not doing a lot of damage to the cause by acknowledging the obvious, that is that there, there are nuclear threats in the air. Um, but this is an area that some, some have already criticized him for. So I think the most likely scenario is the status quo, right? We continue on with a conventional conflict that Russia is struggling to kind of hold on to. And maybe some of this mobilization that they're engaged in will will stabilize the line slightly and prevent them from being completely expelled from the Donbass before the before winter sets in and kind of stabilizes the, the situation for a while. And, you know, maybe with enough time, there's a chance to work at some kind of uh, more permanent settlement. But there is a higher risk of nuclear use now than at any time, I think, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, just to bring it back um, to, to how we started the conversation. There's a little debate in my world about whether there's a higher risk now than there was kind of at the beginning of the conflict, whether these new threats by Putin, whether the what appears to be Russia losing its grip on any semblance of a military victory here, whether that makes nuclear use more or less likely. But for sure, we're in a world where the risk is higher than it has been. And so it's something you know that's worth kind of keeping in the back of our minds and, and paying attention to as, as the conflict plays out. Yeah. And I think the only other thing I would add is is if if... You know, I think it still remains very important for NATO to publicly, like as as many times as they can, you know, just stand firm and and uh, make sure that that solidarity and and being galvanized against uh, the aggression holds. Because what you what you really don't want is Putin thinking that he can do something that will force NATO to to force Ukraine to end this, to, to accept some type of settlement or, or negotiate or whatever. So, right. So like, if you, if you're Putin, you think like, there's something I can do that will make NATO kind of force Ukraine to accept a settlement. I'm going to do that thing, whether that's use a nuclear weapon, whether that's whatever. But so to, the way to confront that, it seems to me is that NATO needs to be very clear. There's nothing you can do. We're not going to force Ukraine to accept a settlement that they don't want to accept. They want to accept a settlement. That's fine, but we're not going to force them to negotiate table. And Putin needs to know that because if he believes that there's a way to get that to happen, uh, then he might be more inclined to take more you know, risky behavior in, in trying to get that thing. Yeah, this is an interesting issue. This idea, it goes back to what you said at the outset about the lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis with you know, finding the Jupiter missiles in the conflict and finding, you know, some have talked about finding an off-ramp for Putin. How does Putin leave this war uh, without uh, making it a decisive, victor- uh, decisive loss? For him, and sometimes when people talk about this, there is a, an objection from all of us who support Ukraine in this conflict, which is it's not the U.S.'s decision what what <laughs> right. the off ramp is. Let right? Ukraine decide. This is, yeah. this is a Ukraine fighting for its homeland, and certainly the U.S. can't yeah. say to Ukraine, "Here is the deal you will take." Right? I mean, that doesn't seem right. Not something we could pull off, even if we, even if it were right. Um, so. You know, I feel like uh, there's that immediate objection to the idea of like, why should we find an off ramp for this horrible guy? The off ramp is he leaves he leaves Ukraine and you know and Crimea. Right, he's got he's got an off ramp. He can he can do it anytime he wants. Pull the troops out. (laughs) Exactly, it's obvious to everybody. That's the off ramp. So uh, there there's that argument. But if you kind of like hold on for a second before engaging in that knee jerk reaction, which I kind of share whenever I see those kinds of ideas. It is possible that the United States is in a position to help facilitate a peace that could be more sustainable than one if, that would occur if we kind of left Ukraine alone to, to right. solve it with Russia. Like we have the ability to address some of the issues that are at stake here in a way that makes a peace deal more likely that if the U.S. is engaged than if it is not engaged. So it, it isn't right to say that the U.S. has no role to play or NATO has no role to play in um in resolving this conflict we and they do and 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 the issue is only not imposing a peace deal on a unwilling ukraine um and that i think is where we should really draw a line right that this is this is a deal that is something for it to be sustainable this is something that ukraine has to agree to this isn't something that we can force on ukraine so there's the kind of moral issue we shouldn't force it on ukraine but also if we did it wouldn't be likely to hold uh and and so it's something that we should continue to think about what are the ways the United States and NATO can lay the groundwork for a peace deal or, you know, some cessation of, of conflict in Ukraine. And the fact that it's a, it's a controversial and it, it kind of exposes you to this objection that, well, you know, the, the, the solution should be Russia withdraws. We should kind of look past that and really try to find ways to, 
to create peace because uh, the yeah. ongoing conflict is not is not good for anyone, and it always has this risk of uh, of escalation to nuclear weapons, which would be really really bad. Right, and that's the other thing that you, you just said. I think is also relevant that people often forget. I think, which is that Ukraine, Ukraine it's not like Ukraine's loving like being in war. You know, like they would like to 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 have the war stop as well. You know, sometimes we think like you know, okay, well, it's it's they're, they're fighting for their homeland, which is true, and like they don't. The idea of having a settlement might just be very unappealing if you think about it in terms of like where you're giving Russia something. But at the end of the day, they are in a war right now, and war is costly. It's costly to both sides, and so if we could find ways to to limit the costs or reduce the costs or end the costs, uh, potentially we're in the situation where nuclear war is, is a possibility. Then, then all of a sudden, if you start framing it that way, it seems a lot, a lot different. But I totally agree with you. The idea of imposing anything uh, like a NATO saying to Ukraine, this is the deal that you're going to just have to live with, uh, is, is morally horrendous, I think, to a lot of us. But then it also, like you, you point out, is, is unlikely to be a lasting deal. Uh, and it might very well be the case that we see you know, more violence shortly thereafter, like once that settlement gets, gets imposed. I totally agree. And, but and it's not like anyone's suggesting that anyway, right? This, this, is, this is very much a straw man. It's a Twitter straw man. So well, people... no, it would, be, it would be only if Putin believed that he could get that. That's, I think the only question is, does Putin believe with a tactical nuclear weapon that, that instead of a conventional response militarily, that what would happen is NATO countries would say, I'm not going to war with Ukraine. I, I was fine giving them weapons. I was fine giving them uh, aid. I'm even fine, you know, potentially giving them the Israeli, you know, Iron Dome or whatever. But I draw the line at having my soldiers die for Ukraine. That there's a logic to that, right? So that Putin might say to himself, you know what? I, I'm I'm gambling that Germans are are not going to put up with having the, having Germans die, German citizens go to war and fight and die, you know, in Russia over Ukraine and. If he's right about that, then the question becomes, well, what can I do to make Germany adopt that position? I know. I'll use a nuclear weapon. And all of a sudden, the, the, the German citizens are sitting there thinking, well, if our options are force Ukraine to accept a peace deal that they might not like, or we go to war over Ukraine, I'm sorry, but I'm telling Ukraine, you got to get to the negotiating table. I'm not saying that that's what the Putin is thinking. I'm not saying that Putin... Uh, if that, that's right, that that would happen. I'm making no predictions whatsoever, but I worry that this is something that Putin is thinking about. And that's why I, I, I keep on saying, showing solidarity in NATO countries, publicly saying any type of nuclear weapon explosion of any kind is going to be a game changer and we will, we will not tolerate it. I think all that stuff rhetorically is actually important because you don't want Putin thinking that he can start to chip away at NATO uh, solidarity. Yeah, but I mean, it's cheap talk, right? It, it, you can make these statements. It's definitely cheap talk, Jeff. It's you can make these statements. Talk. You can. No one has to listen to them. Putin certainly doesn't have to listen to them. They mean nothing. To, to say in advance, oh yeah, you know that would be a game changer. <laughs> you would face significant consequences for this. I mean, right. you know that that doesn't. I, I I don't know that even making those statements is sending a signal of solidarity. That's useful in any way but i, I mean can i ask you one last yeah. one last question before we before we wrap up here the other the other point that people have have been talking about we've touched on this before in this podcast with, with respect to the russia ukraine uh, uh crisis is the lessons that china might learn uh you know for taiwan let's say so if if if, if we go down a road where you know putin does use some type of of nuclear weapon is it the case, do you think, that one of the, the serious considerations that the United States and the West would have to make would be not only how to respond to Russia in the, in the sort of short term, but also what it might mean down the road for China if we were to not have some type of major uh, retaliation? Is that, is that something that you think we, we should – or not we should, but is that something that policymakers you think need to take seriously? Yes. Yes, I do. And it's not just China. I mean, the, the idea that the use of nuclear weapons in war is not something that the world will tolerate is a very useful idea to have out there. Um, yes, it, it really that. is. It's, it's something that's very helpful. Uh, yeah. and, and I think everyone wants to keep it. Um, and so to the extent that there needs to be a demonstration that uh, the world will not tolerate this kind of thing, people think that's worth doing. Uh, I don't think it's like... There's a. I don't think there's a lot of thinking about. Well, th if this happens, then China is likely to engage in this particular scenario. Um, the the context is so different 
um, for yep. the for the potential China use of nuclear weapons. That it's it's uh, yeah, it's hard to draw to draw direct parallels there. But th- this belief in a uh, the importance of this norm is is real. I mean, policymakers really think that this matters and that um, the international community needs to respond strongly. Um, there are some there's some disagreement about how strongly the international community will respond. That's for sure. I mean, some folks think you will see a very strong response that uh, there'll be kind of international opprobrium over this, that everyone will be uh, making Russia into even more of a pariah than it will be. And others who think, well, maybe for a couple of weeks, you'll get some strongly worded statements, but then things will kind of wear off and go back to normal. So, um, you know, I guess, uh, there's only one way to find out. I don't know. We 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 don't we don't want to be down that road where we're yeah, finding out we how wanna, the international community is going to respond. I, I think we we disagree on many things, but uh, I think Caplo, we we do not want to be normalizing nuclear the use of nuclear weapons. I think no, we could both agree. No, it's not right. You shouldn't do it. So for anyone listening, um, policymakers, people in DC, Moscow, students, let's just let's don't, just not don't go use there. don't use your nuclear weapons. Don't just, don't use nuclear weapons, no. please, please. There's better better ways to solve your differences. Yeah. I agree. Um, and I think that's a good sentiment on which to, to end this discussion. Marcus, thanks again for joining me. This has been great. I, I hope that everybody listening did not mind my diving into the, the weeds of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I do think it's important. So I'm glad that we uh, talked about it. We should just work our way. Next week, we can do uh, a Korea. We can just like work our way through all the, the Cold War crises and and, uh, yeah, and there's a bunch for, of them too. Yeah, you know, exactly. then we get into the yeah the various proxy wars, and yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. We could well, no, and we didn't. You know, we didn't mention that the one of the issues with figuring out the likelihood of Russian nuclear use is that we haven't had a lot of examples of nuclear use in the past, but we have had true. some examples of the consideration of nuclear use. And That's so true. this is this is, these are kind of interesting parallels uh, from Vietnam and from Korea, and there may be some parallels there that we could have drawn out, but. We're out of time. And to be fair, to be fair, when JFK says, you know, you should not humiliate another uh, nuclear power because you don't want them to use it. The United States has been humiliated in the past and thankfully has not used nuclear weapons other than the the one instance. And so one should question maybe whether humiliation, causal arrow, nuclear use is actually the appropriate way to be to be thinking about that. Because the empirical record, I think, would would suggest maybe not. Yeah, I think there are differences between the political systems in those countries that are maybe worth drawing out before we draw too strong a conclusion. As always, as always, we can complicate matters further if we want. Right. Anyway, if you'd like to suggest something we should talk about on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Uh, keep them coming. They, you can email Marcus Holmes. Or call us on our live phone Or line. call us. That's right. You can talk to us at speakpipe.com slash cheap talk. Uh, and we'll get you on the air or not, but at least we'll... We're going to we're gonna have to buy more storage space on that because this it's overflowing with... Sadly, none of them are appropriate for actually playing on the podcast, but it's nice but to But I nice still to like to listen to them, yeah, so no, go I ahead and continue, you know, record your message. Yeah. All right, well, until next time. Thanks, Marcus. So today is fall break. It's October 13th on uh, when we're recording this, and so I've been playing a lot of chess, obviously, because it's fall break, so what else am I going to do? And uh, I am just amazed, in particularly in Blitz games, which is each person has three minutes. And so you can go through, like, you know, you can play like a bunch of these in an hour. What I am continually amazed by is, is two things. Number one, the, the um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like, the, the waves. So, like, I will go on these streaks while I'll, I will win, like, ten games in a row. And I'm seeing everything. Like, I'm, I'm five moves ahead of the night. I mean, I am, like, seeing everything on the board. And then I'll go through this streak where I'll lose, like, ten games in a row and see absolutely nothing. Like, miss the most obvious things that, like, that are going on in the chessboard. And it's just, it's, it's, just it, it's fascinating to me just that, like, you know, game to game and, like, streak to streak, you can be, like, so bad or you can be so good and there's seemingly no kind of explanation. The other thing is, I... I, I fail to like to get better at like managing myself. So like when I'm in one of these like losing streets. So like today, early today, I lost like 50 elo in like the span of like 15 minutes, right? Because I lo- I lost like four or five games in a row. And I'm like, what I should do, what a reasonable person would do, is get up, stop playing, go take a walk. Or if, I, if I'm not going to do that, at the very least, play like a, a long game, like a 30-minute game where I have time to actually think about what I'm doing. But no, instead I just keep on playing. It's like I keep on playing until I win one. And so I lose, 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 and then like win one. And I gain like my six ELO points back. 
you know, and I, and then I, and then I stop, but it's just like, I need to get better at, at having the, the discipline. Like when I lose three in a row, it's like when you're at craps in Vegas, you know, it's like three in the morning, you've lost $200, you leave, you know what I mean? You get up and leave. You don't say like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay here until I win 50 bucks back or whatever. That, that never, that never worked. <laughs> Welcome to Chess Talk. Well, we Chess should, talk. We, we, yeah. I, I, gotta, know, I gotta like... say, I gotta say, I gotta say, of all of the episodes that we've had on this podcast so far, the one that has garnered the most feedback to me personally was our chess episode. So I don't know if that we really means... tapped into something among our seven listeners that we didn't necessarily know, and that right. like a, a scary number of them are chess enthusiasts. <laughs> They're chess enthusiasts, like the yeah. rest of the world is, because of the pandemic, everybody got into chess, you know. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, no, I'm glad that we finally struck a chord with our listeners. We've been we've been searching for content that'll really connect, and so so finally we found it. I was in a uh, doing a guest spot in a class the other day, and uh, uh, I happened to mention our podcast, and the <laughs> one of the women in the class said, "Oh, you're the other guy." <laughs> Thank you. To which, was, I, to which I said, you. no, he's the other guy. <laughs> this no, is not know. like... We all know what the hierarchy yeah, of, like, uh, you, you you know, are, personalities is. Just, is, for, yeah. just to clarify for everyone, Professor Holmes is a guest on my podcast. This, that's, that's how I like to see uh, things. I mean, if we... I, I, I'm going to FOIA some of the emails that we the, the, the began this. I think it was a joint endeavor. I, I, I don't feel like you were the... Uh, the creator of no, clearly are, or it clearly is a joint yeah. endeavor, but if right. somebody's going to be the other guy, it should be you. That, that's all I'm saying. I mean, it, it is true that you always start, you always kind of begin the podcast episode. Which I'm, implies, the, I'm the master of ceremonies, that's my role, right? That's it my implies, role in the thing. It implies the some expert. sort of ownership, yeah. Right. I'm the play by play, you're the color guy. I bring the content, yeah, yeah. exactly, right. the substantive content, yeah. Yeah. So, like, is it Bob Costas's broadcast, or is it the, that the color guys caught? Uh, it's a very interesting uh, question, actually. I mean, it's, it's the yin and the yang. You can't have yeah. one without the other. Yeah. 